Just a reminder, if you are elementary age, now is the time. You can go with John, although you're going to be missing out if you don't stay, but whatever. Um, well, my name is Bobby Austin. I've been serving as the youth and family pastor here for the last four years. Prior to that, I had the privilege of serving as the kids pastor for five years here at GBC. Uh, And none of that is going to have any bearing on what happens today, other than I'm maybe not typically used to speaking to a room full of adults, uh, and that I'm tempted to provide candy for anybody who pays attention the whole time today. So, Brad, if you do well, fingers crossed. Um, So when Brent asked me to preach, I told Mary, my wife, and uh, her first response, she just looked at me and just with such an encouraging tone, she said, just don't try and be funny. <laughs> so you've already ruined it, um, but uh, truly though, it is uh, exciting, it's an honor to get to stand in front of you this morning uh, and just appreciate what God has revealed of himself in his word. As we read earlier, uh, today we're going to be looking at Exodus 5, specifically verses 1 through 14, and then we're going to borrow a little bit uh, from next week's passage, verses 20 through 22. And last week, Brent took us through Exodus 4, and at the end, Moses and Aaron had brought God's message of deliverance to the people. They believed, they worshiped. As we just heard from the passage today, that worship was short-lived. In a little bit, we're going to read those verses again, but before we do that, I want you to be thinking about the question that Pharaoh asked at the beginning of the chapter. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Now, even though Pharaoh speaks derisively, he's actually asking the right question. This question isn't just the question of this passage, it's a question throughout the entire book of Exodus. Who is the Lord? And oddly enough, Pharaoh makes another insight in this question that's worth considering when he connects the dots that what someone believes about God will dictate how they respond to him. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Now in this passage, Pharaoh isn't the only one that's answering this question. We're actually going to see three groups. We have Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron, and the Israelites. Now as we read it again, I want you to be thinking as we encounter each group how they're responding to their knowledge of who God is. So go ahead, grab your Bibles, turn to Exodus 5. We're going to be in 1 through 14. If you want, grab a Bible from the pew in front of you. That's going to be page 48. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from the work? Get back to your burdens. 
And Pharaoh said, Behold, the land of the people are now many. People of the land are now many. And you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? And then we continue, verses 20 through 22. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? So what do we see here? In verses 1, Moses and Aaron obey. They do what God told them to do. They bring this message to Pharaoh. They're asking for them to let the Israelites go to worship. There's several reasons that this was a legit request. Number one, what Moses was asking for is a basic human right, the freedom to worship. Number two, the Israelites couldn't worship in Egypt because their worship involved sacrifices, and a lot of the animals that they would sacrifice were considered sacred in Egypt. So the request doesn't seem crazy, but because Pharaoh thought of himself as a god and he didn't know their god, he denies the request. So bravely, obediently, Moses and Aaron make a second request, which Pharaoh denies because this whole thing is just, it's taking the Israelites from their work. He tells them to get back to their, gird, their burdens. But it's clear that Pharaoh is so angry about this whole thing, he demands that the taskmasters not supply the straw that the Israelites used to make the bricks that they were required to make. Now, interestingly, the Israelites were not the only group that was slaves in Egypt at this time. As the, Pharaoh, as the Pharaohs always had some major building project going on, the Israelites' job was making bricks. And up to this point, the Egyptians had provided the straw for those bricks as leftover from when they had threshed the grain. But in his frustration, Pharaoh's put a stop to that. So the Israelites are now expected to make the bricks without the straw being supplied to them. Most likely, they resorted to what verse 12 says as stubble, which would have been a trashy, stubbly straw blown about the wind. And crazy enough, there have actually been modern excavations that have happened in Egypt. And they were digging up old settlements, and they discovered three types of bricks, some with straw, some without straw, and they actually found some that had this stubbly root bit of straw in there. It's just a neat confirmation of the reliability of God's Word. So our section ends with the Israelites, not surprisingly, unable to meet their quota of bricks. And the Israelite foremen are beaten because of it. Make no mistake of it, this is a direct line from Moses' obedience to God to the new suffering of his people. 
Now, before we keep going, I want to point out the difference that we see in Moses, a representative of God, and Pharaoh, who would be considered a human tyrant. Moses had a deep concern for justice. Pharaoh set himself against justice. Moses saw himself as a servant. Pharaoh saw himself as a god. Moses lived for God's work. Pharaoh lived for his own privilege. Moses' name continues to live on to inspire and encourage us, just like what we're doing as we go through Exodus. Pharaoh, whose identity we're not even sure of, had a very temporary glory. Now, I told you earlier, we're going to consider Pharaoh's question of who is the Lord that I should obey him. We're going to look at each group's response to that question. So we look at these three groups, we're going to ask two questions. The first question, what does this person or group know about God? And then number two, how do they respond to that knowledge? First up, we have Pharaoh. What does Pharaoh know about this God that Moses speaks of? Well, not much. What he does know is that this is a God of people who have been enslaved for 400 years under his control. We can assume he's not that impressed that in those four centuries, this God has done nothing to intervene on behalf of these people. Beyond that, we don't really have any reason to believe that Pharaoh has much more to go on with regard to who these, people, who these people's God is. So with this super low view of God, how does Pharaoh respond? With derision. He's scoffing. He's not inquiring. This is not a, who is the Lord? This is a, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. It matters how we read that. He just sees that any dealings with this God would disrupt his plans and his power over his people. He even shows how little regard he has that he not only doesn't obey, he makes things harder for this God's people by taking away their straw for brick making. This response tells us exactly what he believes of the Hebrew God. Now, not to spoil the story, although you could argue that this story's been around for 3,500 years, so it's plenty of opportunity to not spoil it. But if you flash forward to Exodus 8.10, Moses makes it very clear that after the plagues, Pharaoh will know that there was no one like the Lord our God. Now, it's actually not going to change Pharaoh's response, but it gives him a little bit more of an excuse of not understanding who this God is. And that brings us to our first principle. The unbelief of God's enemies does not frustrate God's plans, but gives him an opportunity to reveal himself in new ways to his people. I'm going to say it one more time for those that are excited about filling in blanks. The unbelief of God's enemies does not frustrate God's plans, but gives him an opportunity to reveal himself in new ways to his people. We know that God's plans are not going to be thwarted by Pharaoh. But due to Pharaoh not being willing to bend a knee to God at this point, God's going to reveal himself to his people in incredible ways. If Pharaoh had complied and believed, this would be the end of the story. But because of his response... God shows his people his incredible power and his commitment to them. This reminds me of a great illustration from an article I read this week. 
in Newsweek about the church in Iran. Iran has been an Islamic-ruled country since 1979. The government there has gone out of their way to do everything possible to make Christianity impossible there. They've prohibited Christian missionaries. You're not allowed to preach the gospel. They can't print Bibles. They've even put cameras outside of churches. They routinely arrest and jail Muslim background believers. And in 2008, they actually passed legislation that said it was okay to put to death Muslims who had converted to Christianity. And yet, Christianity is growing faster in the Islamic Republic of Iran than in any other country. They report that the mosques are empty. Despite a lack of clergy, a lack of church buildings, groups of four and five believers are gathering in tiny house churches, singing quietly or not at all. Now, is it surprising that an Islamic government is doing everything they can to squash this? No, not at all. What's astounding is that our God doesn't need a government to accomplish what he wants. He's revealing himself to these men and women in his own means. So what about you? Are you willing by faith to see the things in your life that are difficult as opportunities for the Lord to reveal himself in new ways? I don't know what your circumstances may be. Maybe it's health-related. Maybe it's financial. Maybe you're discouraged with the growing godlessness of our culture. Whatever it may be, have you asked God not only to solve the problem, but to make himself more known through it? Let's move to the Israelites. So what do the Israelites know about God? Honestly, it'd be pretty easy to give them a pass here. They've been enslaved for 400 years. They haven't been able to sacrifice or worship the way that they would like. But we do have a few clues that they have some knowledge of who God is. The midwives in chapter 1 show a knowledge of God that led to a bold defiance of Pharaoh. Moses' own parents' understanding of God led them to defy Pharaoh's order to kill their son. At the end of chapter 2, the Israelites call out for deliverance and God hears their cries. But the thing that is the real clincher that doesn't let Israel off the hook here is at the end of chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. Moses and Aaron gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So, how do the Israelites respond at the end of chapter 4? They believed, they bowed, they worshipped. This is their deliverer God. Yet, when we get to chapter 5, we see a very different response, don't we? In light of their suffering, they're angry at God. They direct it towards Moses and Aaron. They actually even go to Pharaoh to be their deliverer. What? Such contrasting responses, yet how much does this hit home for us? It's easy to love and worship God when he's doing exactly what we want him to do. What about when there's hurt, confusion, suffering? That brings us to our second principle. We can't look at God through the lens of our circumstances. We have to look at our circumstances through the truth of who God is. We can't look at God through the lens of our circumstances. We have to look at our circumstances through the truth of who God is. I saw a meme shared on social media the other day that just 
hit me like a punch to the gut. It says, if God is our Father, then somebody needs to call CPS because this is straight up abusive. My first reaction was to be defensive towards God. And then that gave way to just the heartbreak reality that whoever wrote this or whoever shared this has been through something so devastating, such hardship, that when they look at their situation, this was their wrong but naturally derived conclusion about God. Now you contrast that meme with a story about Blake Holmes. Some of you may know Blake. He served as a pastor here with college in the late 90s and started Crosspoint. Blake and his wife were confronted with the diagnosis of their really young son, Gage, with leukemia. A lot of people ask Blake, is this causing you to question God? Is this giving you doubts about your faith? Blake's response, today is not the day I decide who God is. I decided that a long time ago. Now is when we will walk in the truth of who God is. As we see our culture shift and things like sexuality and gender issues come more and more to the forefront, we're seeing believers question God because of the truth that he lays out in his word about these things. The arguments are, it's not hurting anyone for my friend to have these feelings. Or if they're two consenting adults, what's the big idea? The scary thing about it is that in their acceptance of these ideas that are based on love for these people, it's causing them to question God. Their conclusion is that God must not be loving to restrict these things. Maybe he's not who I thought he was. But what is happening is they're making conclusions about God based on their circumstances that they're looking at. Instead of looking at their circumstances through the lens of God, because I know God is loving and his ways are for our good, then his restriction of these things must be out of love for our and their ultimate good. Who God is, is the lens for believers to view all things. Who God is, is the lens for believers to view all things. So for you, what are you doing in your life to so develop an understanding of who God is that you're trained to see all these things through that lens? Are you spending time in God's word? Are you spending time studying scripture with other believers? You can't expect to see the world through an accurate view of God if you don't know him based on who he tells us he is in the Bible. And lastly, for Moses and Aaron. Of all the characters in the story, they for sure have the most to go on here for what they know of God. In Exodus 3, God meets with Moses in the burning bush and immediately tells Moses that he's the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He goes on to reveal that his very appearance to Moses is because his heart has been moved by the suffering of his people. He is going to be their deliverer. And later in that chapter, for the first time, he gives his people his name, I Am, or we use the Hebrew translation Yahweh. What was God telling Moses by calling himself I Am? He was telling Moses that his very character defines him. Tony Evans says, by describing himself this way, God was affirming his self-existence and self-sufficiency. He depends on nothing and no one. He is the creator and sustainer of all. God is saying, I am who I was, I am who I am, and I am who I will be. 
My identity will be more fully known as I deliver my people. Not only does God reveal all this about Moses, he also promises Moses that through all this, he's going to be with him. Now, we don't know exactly what information Aaron got, but we do know that at the end of chapter 4, Aaron knows who God is too. So how do they respond to knowing who God is? Well, through the middle of chapter 5, they show bold obedience. They obeyed in delivering God's message to his people. And then all they do is go before the most powerful person in the world and make a request not once but twice. You can explain that only by that those are only actions of someone who has the faith in the one who sent them, a belief that I am was with them. But then just a few verses down, Moses is questioning God. Why? Why have you done this evil to your people? Why did you send me in the first place? The only result of my obedience to you is suffering for my people, and you haven't held up your end of this. Whoa! What a leap from the worship and obedience at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Has Moses completely forgotten what God told him? Remember that God told Moses that this whole thing has come about because he cares so greatly about the suffering of his people. God made it clear in chapter 3 that Pharaoh wasn't going to let them go the first time. But that's not what derailed Moses here. What has Moses' faith faltering? It's that he's the one being blamed for the people's suffering. This moment for Moses is super relatable. What about when our obedience means that the people that we're leading have to go through hard things? In other countries, believers are faced with choosing to follow Christ and bringing potential persecution not just on themselves, but those they love as well. In families who choose to foster, they choose to bring all the good, but also pain, not just into their adult lives, but into their homes and their kids' lives as well. For families who hold off on giving cell phones or allowing social media, the hardship is typically felt by the kids who are potentially made fun of in school or feeling isolated. This brings us to our third principle. Knowing God does not exempt us or those we love from suffering and confusion, but it changes what we do with and believe about suffering. I'll say it again. Knowing God does not exempt us or those we love from suffering and confusion, but it changes what we do with the suffering and believe about suffering. Moses, unlike Israel, takes his hurt, his confusion to God. God meets Moses there, and in chapter 6, he reminds Moses who he is. I'm Yahweh. I'm that covenant God of your forefathers. And in reminding Moses of these things, he sends him back to work. For you, where do you go with your suffering? Do you run to a Pharaoh to be your deliverer? Do you look at those around you to blame or do you go back to God and let him, through his word, remind you who he is? A.W. Tozer said, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. As we've seen in this passage and continue to see in our own lives, what we believe about God determines how we respond to him in worship, in obedience, and in suffering. While what you believe about God is the most important thing about you, as we see in God's response to Moses in chapter 6, it's what God says of himself that is the most important thing. 
as a dad, one of the things I find myself saying to our kids in hard moments is, do you believe that I love you? Do you believe that I want your good? Parenting's hard. There's a lot of times when I'm having to make hard decisions for our family. So it's important for me, for my girls to know me and to know my heart for them so that they can trust me even when they don't understand. Do you know those things about God? That he loves you and that he is for your good? So I asked the same question that Pharaoh asked. Who is the Lord that you should obey, that you should worship, that you should suffer? Can you answer? Let that be something that you think about. As we move to our next steps, I want you to think, who is someone in your life that you can share with this week? Tell them how the Lord has used this difficulty in your life to know him better. Who are the people that God has put in your life that would be encouraged by this? And then where are the places that you can plug in this fall at GBC with the aim of knowing God more? in the hopes of developing that lens of his truth to see all things. There's so many things happening this fall. If you look in the word portion of your bulletin, ways that you can grow and develop that lens of God's truth. And then lastly, consider where you go with your suffering. Decide now to turn to Jesus when you go through hard seasons. How grateful we are that Jesus took on the suffering that should have been ours. And as we sing now, Jesus, thank you. Take this time to offer up your thanks. Please stand as we move into a time of worship.